resolutions, family, partners, and friends. Happy New Year. Well, it's that time of year again, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. It's dark when you head into work. It's dark when you leave work. It's that time of year you made it through the holidays and it seems like you're just always tired. You can't hit the snooze button enough. And that got me thinking, how did the time duration on the snooze button become nine minutes? Why not 10 minutes or five? Well, I'm glad that you asked. There are three theories or schools of thought. The main theory behind the snooze period being set at nine minutes is a technical one. The snooze function had to be worked in around the existing gears on small alarm clocks, keeping the time period to single digits. And it is said to have presented a more logical technical solution. There's a secondary reason, which is related more to the user experience, in that a nine minute snooze is a satisfactory time for a brief rest, but if you get past that 10 minutes, your body falls back into a deep sleep and it makes it more difficult to wake up. And then there's simply the last one, which was all marketing. General Electric, Telcon, introduced the snooze alarm as a new kind of an alarm. The rival company Westlock quickly followed with the alarm that had a drowse button that offered a five to 10 minute respite. Ultimately, the snooze won out. Sometimes it's great to be the first mover in a space. Anyway, this is Andy Erickson, your host of the award-winning Smart Acid Podcast, and I'm here with the cheese to my macaroni, the mayonnaise to my potato salad. It's the heartbreaker, Chris Hearns. Heartbreak, my man. How you holding up? I'm doing great, Andy. Happy New Year. How are you? I'm doing all right. Did you did you have a good holiday season? I did. I ate too much mac and cheese and potato salad. Well, that's good. Did you uh, steer clear of all the mistletoes? I know that's been Achilles heel of yours in the past. It's a challenge, but yeah, I, I pulled it off. Anyway, we have a masterpiece today, so let's get at it and give it a tasty. All right, the Smart Assets team is out over their skis today as we have an extremely brilliant guest. He is known in the industry as the historian, or at least that's what we call him. But most of you probably know him as David Allen Cole, the president and CEO of the Science History Institute located in Philadelphia, PA which preserves and promotes the understanding of the history of science. So let's get David in here and get at it. David, really appreciate you joining the Smart Assets crew today. How are you doing? My pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, before we get into the good stuff, um, I recently watched a presentation of yours on the history of innovation that you led at the Imagine Science Conference. And there's a portion of this presentation where you talked about Elijah McCoy, who was the inventor of the oil drip cup, which allowed steam engines to continuously lubricate the pistons that powered the trains. The invention became so important that no one was willing to try a knockoff as they needed the real thing or what we know today as the idiom, the real McCoy. So we were hoping you'd play a little gem of a game with us. We have a list of idioms. We wanted to test your knowledge and how they originated. It's multiple choice, so it should be relatively easy. You in? I'm in. All right. Perfect. First one. The origin of the term mad as a hatter is related to A, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, B, an illness caused by substance that turns animal hides into felt, or C, an upset hat maker from the 17th century. Well, one could argue it's all three, but B is the solid choice. All that mercury poisoning. All right, one for one. Yeah, great start. Uh, Thank you, David. Question number two here. The origin of the term burning the midnight oil is related to A, the use of oil lamps, B, early oil refining processes in the 1800s, or C, burning of oil-based aromas. Oh, I want to say that's B again. How'd I do? Uh, This one was A. It is related to the use of oil lamps before electricity. No, or whale oil, whale oil and kerosene lamps. Okay. All right, number three. The origin of this term, 
Talk about the weight of the world on your shoulders is related to A. Elephants carrying military troops in 3rd century BC B. A 1916 poem by Carl Sandburg or C. Atlas from Greek mythology I think that's C. Our friend Atlas Boom, two for three, he's already crushing you Yeah, about 66%, that's a D in most people's book <laughs> We'll see what we can do to improve <laughs> We're past fail here, we're past fail here <laughs> Alright, fourth pass fail question, David Origin of the term break the ice is related to breaking a frozen surface to allow boats to pass, B, preparing for ice fishing, or C, breaking of ice for the use in cool drinks. I want to say it might be C, the Boston and New England ice industry. Very good guess, but it's actually A, related to uh, boats. It's around breaking the frozen surface to allow the boats to pass. Uh, okay, well, well, the listeners should know, though, that the biggest industry by dollar sales in the early 19th century in New England was pond ice that was exported to the Caribbean principally for use in things like cold drinks. So lots of folks breaking the ice. They don't call him the historian for nothing. Partial credit. All right, the last one. The origin of the term make the grade is related to a, scholars at Stanford graduating with honors in 1892. B, trains and their ability to climb steep hills. Or C, beef standards established in the 1920s by the USDA. I'm going to say that's B with the railroads. Boom. Correct. Okay. Yeah, Stanford was around in 1892, but I don't think they were quite making the grade at that point. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Enough of that. Well done. Appreciate it. Um, you did much better than the heartbreaker did. I think he only got one of them. Let's talk a little bit about it, David. Give us a little bit of your background and, you know, what makes up David Cole? Right. Well, you, you were just calling me the historian. I, I do. I am a historian. I mean, to these days I run the Science History Institute in Philadelphia, which you already introduced, but I am by training many years ago, an American historian. And I now run an institute dedicated to science history. So I came later in my career to the history of science, but I did that in part because wanting to make the point that the history of science is really a part of American history. It's not a separate endeavor, but it's a rich part of American history, global history, and it's a part that doesn't always get the attention that it deserves. And so at uh, the Science History Institute, we're interested in telling the stories behind the science and weaving them into a broader American history, if you would. Thanks, David. So now that we know a little of your backstory, what's the backstory on the Science History Museum and the function it serves? Sure. Well, Science History Institute had uh, comes from humble, small beginnings at the University of Pennsylvania about 40 years ago. Some chemists at the University of Pennsylvania decided to start a small center for the history of chemistry. And uh, through a long process that I won't fully bore you with, it grew dramatically over the decades and became in the 90s something called the Chemical Heritage Foundation, celebrating the history and and the legacy of chemistry all over the world. And then we moved to our fantastic headquarters in Old City, Philadelphia, about uh, 20 years ago. And in fact, if you come to Philadelphia to see the Liberty Bell or uh, Independence Hall, we're just down the street, about one block in the Independence Park. And um, we have a, a lovely headquarters here with a public museum and a library. And then about uh, seven years ago, we merged with an organization called the Life Sciences Foundation, which does the history of the life sciences. And as a merged entity, entity, chemistry and life sciences, we became the Science History Institute that we are today. 
All right. So David, you mentioned the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Um, and a lot of times we in the industry are just, I guess, in every day to day, the term chemicals at times is a negative connotation for many. Uh, what history can you provide on the context that tells the whole story? Well, and you're absolutely right about that. I mean, one of the reasons we exist as an institute, museum and a library is to try to dispel some myths about chemistry. You know, when people think chemistry these days, they typically go right to pollution. You know, how, how do chemicals, quote unquote, uh, pollute our world? And while unfortunately that does happen, the, the, the bigger, the much bigger story about chemistry is that everything in the world is chemistry, as you all know well, and that uh, everything we do is really driven by and fueled by the chemical industry in all its different facets. So we like, we, we like to say that we tell the stories behind the science here at the Institute. And one of the things we try to do is encourage our audiences to understand that chemistry is everything in the world. Everything is chemistry, but it's kind of flying beneath the radar, right? People don't realize all the places that chemistry appears in their lives. So we try to rectify that by telling stories about the history of things that are familiar to people, but they don't realize that chemistry is a big part of those things. That's awesome, David. Thank you. So history informs our future, from what I'm told. What do you foresee as areas of biggest upcoming or ongoing chemistry innovation? Sure. I mentioned that we try to help people recognize the chemistry that's in their lives and then show them both what happened in the past, but also what might be coming in the future. I mean, a big area that's getting a lot of interest right now is so-called green chemistry. A lot of people think that the next big revolution in chemistry is going to be around green or sustainable solutions in chemistry in every facet of our lives. Two that we're particularly interested in are plastic waste problem. How can we produce plastic in a more environmentally efficient way? How can we dispose of it and long-term manage disposal in a more environmentally friendly way? And so we're creating exhibitions and podcasts and articles and digital exhibitions on that very topic. Another one that we're kind of excited about that really isn't on many people's radar is something called mechanical chemistry. Mechanical chemistry is a kind of green chemistry that has its origins really in prehistory. Mechanical chemistry is the first human chemistry. It's basically using techniques like grinding and high pressure and abrasion to create new chemical compounds. And people have been doing that since people were grinding mortar and pestle in prehistoric times. But today, through all kinds of advanced techniques like ball milling, etc., there's been a revival of mechanical chemistry in the late 20th and early 20th centuries. And we're creating exhibitions and writing articles that tell the story of how that's happened and why and how it's going to lead to a cleaner, greener future. All right, David, we read in the headlines the dangers ahead with technology and AI in particular. Has chemistry had similar moments in the past? And how did you see those stories ending? Sure. You know, right now, AI is all the rage, of course, and there are questions about its vast potential, but also some of the sometimes scary challenges that might be associated with it. And uh, we certainly saw this in, uh, well, certainly in the United States, and I would say globally, after both of the world wars, as just good examples of this, right? Where after World War I, advances in chemistry played a tremendous role in that war, both on the kind of the dangerous side of things, armaments, but also uh, in, you know, clothing and medicines that helped protect people. And that led to a big industrial boom in the 1920s in chemistry in the United States and in Europe. And then again, after World War II, where once again, advances in chemistry, material science, 
played an enormous role in the uh, war efforts on, on both sides of that conflict. And then there was an attendant industrial boom in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in which chemistry really leapt forward in a lot of important ways, both in creating new materials and also in new kinds of instrumentation for measuring things, that, that which in turn leads to innovation. And that was very much a feature of the post-World War II period. And now a lot of people would argue that, like, as I was just saying, that with the advent of, of so-called green chemistry, that maybe we're, we're now entering a third boom period of decades of unexpected but exciting growth in the chemical industry because there's an urgent problem that needs solving, right? Before two world wars, this time it's an environmental issue that maybe is going to be driving the innovation. Yeah, that's awesome, David. Thank you. So what can you tell us about the history of the chemical business and maybe how it relates to present state? One of the things that, that a lot of our audience members don't realize is that, uh, just as one example, is that a lot of the safety practices, quality control and safety practices that we take for granted across industries in the modern world really originated in the early chemical industry and specifically uh, at one company in particular. The DuPont company wasn't the only company in the 19th century that was thinking hard about safety, but they were in many respects the forerunners. And I had the privilege of running a museum uh, a few years ago called the Hagley Museum and Library down in Wilmington, Delaware. Some of your listeners may know it, which is the site where the DuPont Company was founded around 1800. And from the very beginning, the DuPont Company was the forerunner uh, really thinking about how to build industrial safety into the workplace. Certainly Univar has to think about safety in every facet of its operations. And DuPont's really figured out how to do this early on. You know, the first safety plan, the first evacuation protocols, uh, methods for making every part of the production process safe. And they had to do that because their business in the early 1800s was about making black powder. And black powder is pretty volatile stuff. So to keep their workers safe and to keep their business alive, they had to invent a whole new field. And that was workplace safety. And so this is the kind of thing where if you take safety for granted in the workplace today, you wonder why you have to follow all these rules, check all these boxes. It's because over 200 years ago, someone figured that out because it was a life and death thing. And to me, that's really cool because it's relatively a shameless plug for Univar Solutions because we have built such a strong safety culture. Yeah, great stuff. Anyhow, we have a guest host, Dwayne Rourke, who is our Vice President of Public Affairs, Government Relations, and Communications. Dwayne, we kind of had a quick little jump question for you. Um, could you kind of give us a little bit of the Univar's origin story in the background? Well, sure. We're actually are getting ready to celebrate our 100-year anniversary, which is exciting. So we were incorporated originally on August 8th, 1924. So we will be using 2024 to uh, through various uh, vehicles to celebrate that fact. But Univar's history is one that actually started as uh, Van Waters and Rogers is was the name of the company. And it actually started with a bridge game in Seattle in 19. 1924, uh, because that bridge game actually brought together George Van Waters and Nat S. Rogers. It was really a tag team of dynamic success because uh, George was the seller. He was the ultimate seller. And George's famous quote is that there's a seller's market somewhere, right? So his thought was, hey, 
even in down markets, there's always some place that within the market that is selling. So you need to go find that spot and go sell more. Meanwhile, Nat uh, S. Rogers, he was the business end of it, right? He was the one that was always thinking about the next step, always thinking about the next acquisition. You know, how do we grow this footprint? How we, how do we grow our you know logistics uh, standards? And so that led the company into a lot of different areas that really helped it survive. You know, all, all the major world events that to, had, you know were taking place shortly after. After the inception of the company, everything from the Great Depression uh, all the way through, of course, World War II, which Univar Solutions played a very important role in the war effort, just being a go-to logistics footprint for a lot of the massive manufacturing uh, that was taking place in the United States, of course. So that type of, of history is it really brings a certain sense of pride to the organization, without a doubt. But beyond its impact on, on world historical events, the one element that has always been part of the Univar Solutions history is to have that seller's mindset. One fun story goes back to when the company made its uh, move into industrial textiles. Uh, A department manager purchased a carload of extra-large men's pajama tops. And uh, obviously, that was not the company's uh, sweet spot. And so they said, well, what are we going to do with these? They got innovative, and they decided to simply cut up the tops and then sell them as rags uh, to a company in the machine tool industry. So that just goes to show you that it's that type of innovative mindset that has really helped sustain this company for 100 years. And I'm sure it's that same type of innovative mindset that will keep the company going for another 100. Thanks, Dwayne. Much appreciated. All right, David, bring us home here with one last question, if you would. What is one key takeaway you would have for our listeners today? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two and they're tied together. One is what I said before, which is that chemistry is everywhere in our lives. But I think your people know that well. But that every company, and Univar is a, is a great example of this, every company has a history. And understanding that history, particularly in this space, the chemical industry, is important just understanding who you are today and what you can be tomorrow. You know, critically important that we use a kind of a usable history to guide innovation going forward, take the best from the past, try to build it into the future. And if you're interested in these kinds of stories, both about your kind of organization, but also other key players in the world of chemistry going back hundreds of years, I would invite you to dive into our website at sciencehistory.org and uh, check out our content. A lot of it is digital. If you've got stories to share with us about your past in the chemical industry, we look forward to hearing them and to uh, promoting them. Fantastic. David, thank you very much. Uh, Great to meet you, by the way. Really appreciate the time and uh, really appreciate the insight. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's a wrap on our latest episode of the Smart Assets Podcast. Thanks again to David the Historian for joining us. We hope he enjoyed his first visit with us. Thanks, as always, to our listeners for spending some time with us. Enjoy the winter wonderland wherever you are. Smart Acids, breaking things down for the chemicals and specialty ingredients market, one born at a time. Smart Acids is part of the Univar Solutions Podcast Network.